of Jesus. And all the church said. I want to begin with uh, telling you the story of two men. There was an article in the New Yorker back in February written by David Gann entitled The White Darkness. And in it, he talks about two men, one that you've heard of, a fellow by the name of Ernest Shackleton, and one that you've not heard of, a fellow by the name, a fellow Brit by the name of Henry Worsley. Worsley was a career military officer. He was a tough guy. He was a British commando, and he was an Arctic explorer. And beginning in his high school years, he began to read a lot about Ernst Shackleton and became one of his heroes. He idolized Shackleton for his heroic explorations and endurance in, in the face of, of life-threatening obstacles. And Worsley adopted Shackleton's creed as his own. By endurance, we conquer. And in England, Worsley was considered an expert on Shackleton's life. And Worsley's obsession with Shackleton led him to make the decision that at the age of 55, and in a time period of 80 days, and a distance of 900 miles, he was going to cross the Antarctic uh, continent. And he, he undertook it. Uh, on the journey, he started off well. He endured at times, as you can imagine, frigid weather, uh, temperatures as low as 40 degrees minus zero. Uh, uh, 40 degrees minus zero. He, he was often disoriented, uh, windblown, uh, dogged by deadly crevices. He was pulling a sled across Antarctica that was twice his own body weight. His body was battered by various uh, diseases throughout the, the 80 days that he was trying to, to cover the, the 900 miles. He often was uh, just exhausted and dehydrated. Uh, his body just disease-ridden. And at, at the end of the 80 days, about the late, the, the higher 70s, he, he gets to a point where he's 30 miles from his goal. And it's at that point that he can go no further. He can go no further. And he radios for an airlift, but his body is too far gone. It is too battered. And it was at that time that through multiple organ failure that Henry Worsley passes. Shackleton, despite his fame, despite his toughness, despite his tenacity and heroism, recognized that there were moments on his own expeditions to Antarctica that there was a time to recognize that this is, this is foolishness, that this is, that this is foolhardy, that it's deadly, that lives not only his but his men would be lost. And even though one of his creeds was there's always a little bit further to go, there's just one more move, he recognized that there were times in these expeditions when he's trying to go forward against all of these odds that there was not another move except one. And that was to call for help before all was lost. Which brings us to Psalm 32, which is one of seven Psalms of repentance, uh, recognized by the commentators if you want to write these down. Uh, the Psalms of repentance are 632, which we're looking at this morning, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, 102, 130, and 143. Psalm 32 is a psalm that the commentators historically have associated with David's great sin 
his affair with Bathsheba, and the subsequent cover-up after she becomes pregnant, leading to the murder of her husband Uriah, beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And so Psalm 32 is a psalm about, about broken human beings. And Psalm 32 is a psalm in which a human being, David in this case, recognizes the potential in him for doing incredibly tragic, horrific acts of violence, not only against other human beings, but all of it against God. And so Psalm 32 becomes the answer to this question. What do I do when I come to the place where I see no more moves? What do I do when I come to that place where I see no more moves? That place in life where I know that if I'm going to keep on going, I've got to do something different, if that's even possible, in order to survive, in order to be able to live, in order to, to, uh, to, to pick up the pieces of my life. Psalm 32 answers that question, and it teaches us four things. Number one, the blessed life, sort of a beatitude here in the Old Testament. The blessed life is a forgiven life, a life that senses forgiveness. A secret life, a life where we keep our secrets inside and we bury them down, is a miserable life. Number three, there is a move from misery to relief, And then fourthly, our greatest need is a hiding in, not a hiding from. Let's begin with the blessing of forgiveness. David begins the psalm with these words, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In your Bibles or somewhere on that outline, Circle the word blessed or write it down to to remember later on. David is saying that a part of what it means to have a life that is blessed by God is a life that experiences forgiveness from God. A blessed life is a forgiven life. And it's here that in our own modern age, uh, all these thousands of years from the time of David, that we sort of come to a fork in the road. During the time of David, everyone would acknowledge that there was the possibility of sin in their life. They would acknowledge that, yes, the seeds of their own destruction and the people around them are sown in their own heart, that they are capable of doing wrong things and being guilty. But in our own age, we kind of come to a fork in the road where when it comes to confession and sin and forgiveness, non-Christians will struggle with this in, in one direction, and even Christians will struggle with it in another direction. Let's start with the non-Christian. We live in a culture, and you know this. We've talked about it before. We live in a culture. We live in a time where morality is not something that you pass along. It's not something that that is, is given to you, but it's something that you make up as you go. That morality is something that you determine. Every human has the right to determine what is right and what is wrong for themselves. So the notion of guilt is not a problem now. The problem is, no one is able to live up to their own standards. It's one of the arguments that Paul makes at the beginning of Romans. That everyone is guilty, regardless of whether or not it's a biblical standard of morality, of right and wrong, or even if it's not. There's a philosopher that says that one of the big questions that every human faces is, what does it mean to be a good person? 
Everyone tries to answer that, even as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. We are trying to answer the question, what does it mean to be a good person? To look like Christ is the answer. But everyone tries to define it for themselves. Suppose you define the answer to that question as, this is what a good person is. It's someone who never hurts anyone. It's someone who never, who never hurts anyone, is always trying to be kind, and that's a pretty good thing. I mean, nobody, even in, among disciples of Jesus, would we ever think that hurting another person is the right thing to do. But there's the rub. No one lives up to that standard because you are going to hurt someone even unintentionally by your actions, by, by something that you say, whether it's something you say intentionally or unintentionally, there are those unguarded moments in life where we say something in the heat of the moment or when we're not thinking about the possibility of saying something or doing something that might hurt somebody else, and we do it in that moment. The bottom line is that everyone falls short of the standard and has to live and cope with guilt. And even a lot of disciples of Jesus struggle with this. Augustine, in the 4th century, that great mind. He loved this psalm because he saw in it the hope for his life. Augustine recognized in his own life that he desired to be a saint. He wanted to live his life in imitation of Jesus. He wanted to live his life in which the, the kingdom of God was, was resonating in all that he said and all that he did. But he also recognized in him a second desire. And that was, not only was there a desire to be a saint, but there was the desire to be a sinner. Are you as a disciple of Jesus killing that appetite for sin? We say yes, we say absolutely. But have we really taken the steps necessary to work in that direction? And one of the first steps is to admit that that is part of the problem, our desire at times to break free of the morality of God's Word, of our commitment to obedience to that Word. For Augustine, the beginning of knowledge is to know yourself as a sinner with a move. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, John says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and He will forgive us ours. What? What's He forgiving? Our sins. And not only does He forgive, but He purifies us from all unrighteousness. What is it that, that makes a blessed life when it comes to the forgiveness of sin? And, and the feeling of the removal of that guilt because of that sin. You know, in, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, Macbeth at one point in describing guilt says that it's life's uh, feverish fit. I mean, you get that. When you feel that guilt, that shame begins to take over in our life. It's the feeling of being ill at ease because there's something that is dark in our life being suppressed. And that's why sleep is gone, gone, gone at night. You become irritable and you become angry and all of your relationships begin to suffer. Guilt blunts and stunts pleasure in life. And you beat yourself up continually with those destructive self-talk loops. 
And because all of this is true, when you hide it, David, and David feeling all of this in a psalm, David feels that misery of silence. The misery of silence. There is a, a physically, deeply visceral, bodily response to guilt. And it's misery. Now there is such a thing as false guilt. There is. And that's when we feel guilty for someone else's mistakes. You feel guilty because you have to fire an employee for underperforming. And you feel guilty for that. That's false guilt. You're not the one that underperformed. Or you feel guilty because you close an account of a client who didn't pay their bill. You feel guilty for that and you beat yourself up for that. That's false guilt. That's bad. You're not the one that didn't pay your bill. You feel guilty because you did not live up to someone else's expectation for your life. You know that by the time you're 30, you ought to be a millionaire and you ought to be president of the United States. And you don't live up to that expectation and you feel guilty and you don't feel like you're worthy. But it is healthy in my opinion to feel guilt when you're guilty. And you compound it when you try to hide it. When you try to deny it. When you try to say, uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm good, I'm fine, there's nothing wrong with me, but deep down inside where you're very, very honest with who you are and what you are, you know without a shadow of a doubt that there's guilt. David says in verse 4, when I kept silent, he knew there was a sin in his life, but when I kept silent about it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, never, it's never ending. It doesn't go away. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You know, all of us in South Texas know what that looks like when it comes to flowers, right? We plant these flowers when the temperature is right and the water is right and the, the climate is right. Everything blooms and it flourishes because it's getting everything that it needs to become beautiful. But then the summer heat comes and there's not enough water, there's not enough food, there's too much heat, there's too much sun. The soil is weak and the flowers begin, the things that are supposed to be beautiful begin to wilt. And that's what happens to human beings. When human beings, human beings were created by God to, to become more beautiful and beautiful, stronger and stronger, but it's, it's sin that brings that death that was never supposed to be there. According to Scripture, from Genesis all the way to the maps, death is an intruder that wilts human beings. And that's what happens when, when we deny that that is a part of who we are, that guilt of the sin that we have committed and we come to that point where we realize that the thing that we need most in life is relief that comes in confession. So we ask the question, okay, David, what is confession? What is it really? Well, confession is not, generally speaking, saying things like, the grass is green. I confess to you that two plus two is four. We don't confess those sort of self-evident truths, do we? To confess is to publicly declare the big life-changing truths of your life. Confession is always for the big things, and it's to declare openly things that you know to be true on the inside. It is to declare the big life-changing truths of your life. You know, it's, it's confessing that I did it with the candlestick in the library. Confessing murder. 
Or it's confessing something even bigger and better, like, I love you with all that I am and all that I will ever be. I would rather die than live without you. That's what we say to our spouses. It is a a public declaration of the big life-changing truths of life. It's saying in Romans 10 that Jesus is not just a fella, but that Jesus is Lord. It's Luke chapter 18 saying, Have mercy on me, because I am a sinner. When you confess, you are seeing your life and all of life from God's perspective. As long as David saw everything that happened at the David level, it was all about cover-up. As long as, as David was looking at the David level, everything that happened with Bathsheba could be taken care of at the David level. And when Uriah became an issue and the pregnancy became an issue, it could be handled at the David level. But at the end of that chapter, Scripture says, but God saw what David did. When you confess, you're seeing your life and all of life from God's perspective. You're allowing another to see inside of you. You're making yourself naked in a figurative way of speaking to another person. You're being honest about your life. You're being honest not only to yourself but to other people about what you're capable of doing. Confession in Psalm 32 is the result of David considering his life in light of God and being honest. And so he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. And I didn't try to cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The immediacy here is striking. That David barely has the words of his confession out of his mouth when the blessing of forgiveness comes. But the psalm doesn't end there because at the, right there, it's sort of the beginning and the middle, there is that need for covering. Listen to these words. David says, blessed is the one whose sins are what? Covered. Then we drop down to verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. A cover and a cover up. Cover up and cover. What is David thinking about right there? Well, it's the language of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's beautiful. And towards the end of that week-long creation activity of God, God creates a human being out of the dust, breathes into his nostrils, becomes a living soul. And as he's naming all of the animals and being uh, very good at that job, God notices that, that he is lonely and that's not good, and so he creates a woman. And the two shall become one flesh. And chapter 3 rolls around. And there's Eve in the Garden of Eden, able to eat of any tree, all of the food, anything she wants, except one thing. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Serpent comes, Satan in the form of serpent comes, and says, I don't really think that God has your best interests at heart. She goes, why? She said, well, 
did he really say to you that uh, you should not eat of this tree? She said, yes. He said, don't even touch it. He said, it, there's sort of this, this smirk and this disdainful laugh by the serpent and says, did God really say you were going to die? That's not true. You've become like God himself. Don't you want that? And so she eats of the apple, or whatever it was, maybe a kumquat, maybe a pineapple, I don't know. And she gives some to Adam, and he eats. And what happens? Their eyes are opened in such a way in their sin of distrusting God, of blackballing God, of giving God a vote of no confidence. They see that they are naked in this sin, and what is it? The very first thing that they do, they try to cover up. And in all of the paintings, you know, they're ripping fig leaves off of fig trees and trying to cover up. And God is walking there in the cool of the day. And not only are they trying to cover up, but what else are they doing? They're hiding. They're hiding. They've tried to cover the. I mean, when a human being sins, What's the first thing that comes to mind? How can I cover this up? How can I get away from this? How can I somehow keep myself from being found guilty in other people's eyes? I'm going to cover up. I'm going to cover up. I'm going to cover the nakedness of my sin. I will not be vulnerable. I will be covered up. And then what else do we do? We do what they did. And we hide. We hide. So God goes, where are you? I'm over here. Why are you hiding? Well, and you know how the story goes. The worst, what this psalm is teaching us, friends, is that we are going, because we are human and we live in a fallen world, we are going to commit a transgression, an iniquity against the will of God, and we are going to be guilty. Because we are living in a fallen world, the world is thus, thus have we made it. And we ourselves are fallen. And we're going to try to cover up. But David says, that's not the answer. When I tried to cover up, you know what happened? I felt like my life was wilting. I felt like my, my bones were disintegrating. I didn't have any strength. I couldn't sleep at night. But then I realized I had one more move. And relief would come when I acknowledged my sin. Therefore, I said, I will confess my sin. It's not to cover up, but to confess. And it's not to hide from God, but to hide in God. And David says in verse 7, you are my hiding place. You are will protect me from trouble. Literally in the Hebrew, the besieger. I love the, 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 the language there. The thing that besieges, that lays siege to your life. That's what you're going to protect me from and surround me with songs of deliverance. You know, for as many people are in this room, there are as many besieger, forms of the besieger. But the one thing that all of us have in common is that because we are capable of sinning, there is the reality of death, the ultimate besieger coming to us. And not just dying death, 
but dying in a way that separates us from God for all of eternity. And there is no covering up, there is no hiding from God or that besieger that is ever going to save us. The answer throughout all of Scripture is to hide in Christ. Your life is now hidden in the Messiah. And because He was the one that was stripped naked and all of His clothes were raffled off and throwing the lot to throw in the die. And He was splayed open on that cross and all of the beating and all of the torture, all of the spittle running down to His face, all of that public so that people could walk by and mock, mock Him and taunt Him and say all manner of lie against him. He took all of that in order for us to be hidden in his life, in order to get what he deserved, and that is life everlasting. And through his resurrection, not only was death defeated, but death was defeated for you and for me. And when we come to terms with who we really are, that, you know, we hurt our spouse, we hurt our kids, we hurt the people we work with, we've, we've hurt, there is a record, there is a history, there's a trajectory of hurting people throughout all of our life, of doing wrong, of doing things that em, would embarrass me, uh, would embarrass you, for you to find that out about me, for all of us. There's a trajectory in our life where that is the truth, the honest truth of our life. And to come to grips with that, and that the only move that we have left. Hiding it doesn't work. Covering up doesn't work. Hiding from it doesn't work. Denying it doesn't work. What works, what brings the blessing is the forgiven life that can only be found in Christ. This morning, we're going to sing a song. Maybe you have never appropriated for your own life that kind of blessing. The blessing of knowing that you can sleep at night because all of your guilt has been removed and placed on Christ who paid the debt, paid the, the penalty of your sin, of your crime against God. It, it's about confessing that, that, yes, when I try to lead my own life, I, I lead it into a brick wall. I lead it into the dirt. I blow the engine. I, I, I wreck the tires. I wreck the suspension. And that, and that I've got to take my hands off of the steering wheel of my own life and hand that over to the Christ. I hand it over to God to confess that the biggest truth of my life is that Christ is King and Lord of my life. And to hide in Him by being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit so that your sins are washed away. That you're participating in His death and His burial and His resurrection. That you are in baptism aligning your life up with the will of God in His kingdom. And that kingdom comes to live in you along with God's Spirit. Enabling you. And Augustine struggled to start killing the appetite and the desire to be a sinner and to build the appetite and the hunger and the yearning to be a saint and to live that blessed kind of life. If that describes you this morning, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them about how this could happen for you today. Let's stand and praise God together. God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. He came to love, heal and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. 
done. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know And the life is worth the living just because he lives. How sweet to hold a new 